Hello there, welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. In this edition, two authors with two exceptional books. One non-fiction, and later in the show, we delve into the world of fiction with Sri Lankan-based author Amanda Jayatisa. Now, she's going to join me to talk about her new thriller, My Sweet Girl. There are twists and turns you won't expect. Amanda's book could be labelled a psychological whodunit, but it's also wickedly funny. And Miss Jayatisa is a wonderful guest. Also in the show, new ambient music from an artist I've been keeping a watchful eye on with their previous techno dub and sometimes hip-hop releases. Out of North London, for this outing, Lorraine James is using the moniker of Whatever the Weather. First, the title of the book is Raising Anti-Racist Children, a Practical Parenting Guide. The author, Brett Hawthorne. Brett, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thank you so much for having me. I am excited to be here. What was the big prompt? I mean, I, I know that there was a number of things, as you tell us in the book, but what was the, what was the big prompt, Brett? I know that's, that's kind of the golden question of like, what was the catalyst behind this book? And there wasn't one particular catalyst as it was being black and experiencing racism on a daily basis and trying to figure out how to navigate that. Um, both growing up being black biracial, I have a white mom and a black dad and having conversations about race and racism on a daily basis. And then in middle school, I had the opportunity to go into the gifted and talented program. And at the school district that I was a part of, it was a school within a school. So while the gifted and talented program was predominantly white, the school that it exists within was predominantly black. And seeing that inequity, um, you know, every day, watching the way the teachers treated us differently, and then becoming a classroom teacher myself. And then I'm starting to notice the way that we talk about students, the way that we talk about schools, the way we say good schools or bad schools have a lot of coded language. And so as I'm like trying to figure out how to navigate all of this and to really dismantle racism for justice, I become a parent myself. And we always, we set out and we have these lofty goals as caregivers. You know, we want our children to be readers. We want our children to love learning. We want our children to be independent. But we also want our children to be their most authentic self. We want our children to reach their fullest potential. And so for me, practicing anti-racism, I am on that journey of becoming my most liberated self that there's parts of me that I have left behind, you know, that I felt like wasn't good enough to be in certain spaces. And so I'm now practicing that anti-racism with my children because I always want them to know they're always good enough. As a parent, one thing that I, I discovered and I, and, I, and I just think, I, I hope that most parents discover this, that children are so incredibly innocent, but so incredibly curious. They want answers to questions. So my son was around about seven or eight. And he came home from, well, I picked him up at school. I used to drive and pick him up from school. And I picked him up from school and we got home. And he was as always, just jolly and excited, just one of those kind of children that just likes to sort of, you know, chat and talk and be enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. So we got out of the car, we go in and I said, would you like a snack? And he said, yes, dad. And I've got something really special to tell you. Okay. So I was like, well, great. He, he, he won a competition or something. And he sat down and I made him some uh, uh, peanut and butter jelly. I mean, too many details. But anyway, we sat down and 
And he said, okay, dad, I got to tell you something. Okay. He said, guess what? No, what? I'm chinky. I said, what? And he said, I'm chinky. My friend today told me, he said, ching chong, ching chong, ching chong. You're chinky. Because my son is, his mother is Asian. And I, of course, as you can probably imagine, I was like, what? He took it as being not just a compliment, but a kind of like, it was a superior thing. It was like, he was really special. But I had to deal with this. I had to mm -hmm. think about how do I deal with this? I'm telling you this story because you talk about similar things in your book and you, and, and I'm just wondering what advice would you give if your child comes home to you and says, Hey, I'm black or I'm chinky or, or whatever, whatever they say, which, which mm -hmm. they say in all innocence. Yeah. If it's so in this particular situation, it's a child who now has taken on a um, language, right. Yes. Or identity that was given to him that is rooted in something that's being derogatory. Yes. So in that instance, I definitely would say, who told you, right? Yes. And so then I kind of figure out that information. And then from there, once they say, oh, so-and-so told me, and then I would say, how do you feel about that? Right? And so I'm trying to have them have some language around that. And then I really want to correct what they said and say, yes. you know, so, yeah, whoever said that, they picked something up that's actually not right. Or that's yes. a story or a tale, you know, every household kind of has their own way of saying lie, but it's actually, it's, they've picked up a really old lie yes. and that word isn't kind. And let's practice some things. If someone was to tell you that again, let's practice some things that you could say back to them. Yes. And then from there, probably want to work on, because what the child is really telling us at the root of it is I do want to have language for who I am. So what is the most affirming language for me? And so for your child, it might be biracial, it might be mixed, it might be, um, you know, I'm not for sure for the Asian descent, if let's say it was Chinese, right, you might say Chinese biracial, I go by black biracial. And so then you can start to practice that affirming language that you two kind of come together yes. um, at the same time. And I have a very similar story. Our Kobe, our youngest child was about four. And he came home and we were eating around the dinner table. He was standing, you know, how four-year-olds will stand yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, while they eat. And he said, mom, guess what? And I said, what? And he goes, I'm black. And I turned and I looked at him and I just immediately said, hmm, who told you? Because at that point, we hadn't used racial language for him right. before. Yes. We used, you know, crayon colors, brown, light brown, medium brown, tan, peach, things like that. And it was a friend in his classroom who had told him that. And I just simply said, no, how do you feel? And he said, mm -hmm. and went back to eating like his, I don't know, chicken nuggets yeah. or whatever. Right. Yeah. And we said, okay. And so for us being black is we're very proud of it. It's affirming. It's a language we use. So I didn't have to respond in a way of that was something derogatory, but absolutely. I think it's really important that children have the opportunity for self-identification and also know how to advocate for themselves whenever someone calls them a name or does something that is rooted in racism. Here's the thing about my side of the story, Brett, is that my son was not offended. He was not upset. He kind of thought not only was it cool, he thought it was funny cool. He thought it was like, oh, he didn't realize the racial slur. He didn't realize that going ching chong, ching chong, and you're chinky, he, he didn't understand because he hadn't heard it before. And yes, right. and I did, I followed through on, on pretty much word for word what you just said. 
And I think to your point though, it's, it's always important when we're dealing with young children, because I think sometimes folks get, when I deal with young children versus when I deal adults, sometimes we want to deal with children as if they are adults, right? Children are coming to this work with not only innocence and curiosity, but they are deeply naive, right? They've only been with us for a short period of time and they don't have the historical context that we have. And so when children say things or repeat things, it's so important that we first connect with them. Yes. And then we, you know, are, are there with them on their journey as they're figuring this out. And that's why it's having accurate language and saying, oh gosh, what they said was not okay. And if the child is old enough, we can say, and this is why that's actually something really old that keeps getting passed around. Yes. And it goes something like, you know, um, taking the eyes and over slanting it. It can be looking at in our household, we've looked at um, anti-Asian stereotypes in children's books. One big common one in a lot of uh, Asian in books that have Asian main characters, but are not written by Asian authors. The first couple pages, they're going to have a line that says something like in a far away land, right? Far, far away. That is rooted in that idea of Orientalism where something is so othered or not American enough. So I think that's to, to your point, it's not about when we're dealing with young children, shaming or shutting things down or even avoiding the conversation. It's being able to say, let me give you some context about Yes, that. yes, yes. Let me remind my listeners, if you're just joining us, my guest is Britt Hawthorne. Her book is Raising Anti-Racist Children, A Practical Parenting Guide. There's lots of things in your book that I want to talk about. And one is, and I again, a little, little bit of a story. Under sexuality, gender, and self-expression, you write, If you're cisgender, it's your responsibility to work to make the space welcoming. And I agree with you, totally. But it got me thinking, Britt. My studio is on the second floor, and below my studio is an office with a number of different people in it. And this this paragraph or this sentence got me to thinking. So I went downstairs, and I spoke to the receptionist, and I spoke to, like, maybe a half a dozen, maybe eight people who work downstairs. And I just read the sentence out to them. If you're cisgender, and I explained how it works into the the, the whole setup. Mm -hmm. And every single one of them said, what's cisgender? And I thought to myself, I wonder if you have come across that. I wonder if this is something in your writing in this book, because you do use terms like white domination, which some people will go, white domination? What's that about? So I was wondering how many, not how many, but if you've come across this kind of questioning of words that a lot of people are not familiar with. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's interesting on my Instagram, I just started a series called Accurate Language so that we can all have this nomenclature of language that we're using together. And I think the biggest reason why a lot of us don't have this language is really because, well, oftentimes you don't have the language when you hold the dominant identity. Yeah. Right. And so I remember I didn't know what cisgender was until in my adulthood. I'd never heard of it. And it wasn't until a friend of mine, Katie, had said something they were presenting. They said something about cisgender. And I raised my hand. I said, what's cisgender? And they said, oh, it's when your gender identity uh, matches or, you know, corresponds to your assigned sex at birth. And I, you know, had to sit with that and then process it. And I was like, wait, I'm cisgender. And they're like, 
I don't know. Only you can identify that. And they're like, are you trans or are you cis? And I was like, I'm cis. And I was like, and then a light bulb went off and I'm like, how come I didn't have this language to describe who I am? Yes. I didn't because I'm the dominant identity, right? Society is created for me. It's the same way whenever we're talking about folks of the global majority, we will always name black in front of it, right? Latinx or Hispanic right in front of that. But for white, they always get to be seen as the neutral or default and we don't name whiteness. Yes. So that's a big reason why we don't have some language around dominant identities. Um, and then I think the other one is that oftentimes we're still operating in what I would consider like 1980s or 1990s kind of vocabulary, which was perfect for that time. And this time when we're working with children, it's really, really important that we have an emphasis on language. So for like white domination, for instance, Yes, I prefer to use that when I'm working with young children, because if I have to say white supremacy, then I have to explain this ridiculous ideology. Yeah. We have white people who think they are better or superior. And instead of like trying to teach the myth to break the myth, which is kind of an old school teaching tactic, I rather just teach what's actually happening. How has whiteness been socially constructed and created? And how is whiteness dominating land and cultures, languages and people, both past and present? How do we have colonization? Right? How yes. does that happen? And so having a real emphasis on accurate language is helpful. And that's how I always encourage readers, you know, spend time reading that defining, understanding the very first part of the book. And then the other parts, you can hop around to, you know, whatever sends you energy, but definitely spend time defining our understanding. Because when we're working with children, we want to make sure that they have the opportunity to practice critical thinking. Yes. And that those phrases that I'm using help them to do that. Yes. Critical thinking is so important. And you mentioned that in the book a number of times. Something which you, your your book made me think about, and that was education. I mean, that that's what we're kind of talking about, but mm -hmm. in the form of of, of schools, uh, uh, not just seven and eight year olds and ten to fifteen year olds, but I'm but I'm thinking in university as well. I, I'm I'm thinking just all the way through. Yes, things have changed. Yes, we see, as you say, it's different now to what it was, what's acceptable now as to what was happening in the 80s or the 70s or whenever. I still think, I still feel, and I'm, and I'm going to throw this over to you, that we still live in a very strange time. We still live in a time where, for instance, eubonics is, is an area that I've talked about on my show a number of times, is I come from, a, obviously, a Texas, clearly, obviously, you can tell, but <laughs> no, but I come from a country where eubonics only came in in a very strange way fairly recently. You know, people of, of other color skin, black people from the Caribbean, yes, they came over with their patois, but assimilated into, into society. So if you're, you're listening, one of the famous newscasters on British BBC radio and TV was a black man. But if you listened, you would never, ever have known that. Whereas in America, we have things somewhat differently to that. And I'm just wondering how that all, I'm veering off from what I said about education, but it all comes back into what we learn, how we do things and, and all the rest of it. I'm just wondering how important it is that we haven't moved on from some of those sort of stereotypical things that, that 
I think that you and I probably think we should have. Yes. A long, long think, involved question. <laughs> and I think it's always important, you know, some folks will ask the question like, has progress been made or how much progress has been made or why hasn't there been enough progress? And it's always important to remember that this, this work is uh, always kind of in tandem or working, you can think of it more like magnets um, that sometimes are propelling each other and are repelling each other. And sometimes they're attracting each other. And so every time that I, the way that I know progress is being made is how much backlash is happening, right? How much resistance is happening. So when we start to see resistance that are happening, particularly in the political level, and I'm like, oh, progress is being made. And so now we have backlash that's in response to that. And those deep stereotypes that you are referring to right? Those are deeply embedded in our society and they will shift and change over yeah. time. Yes. And so, and they'll keep resurfacing themselves. And that's why at the end of the book, I said, you know, it does, it takes commitment and perseverance to do this work. And the reason how come we haven't made more progress is because collectively we haven't aggressively sought to dismantle white domination in that way. And so we are continuing to rely on a small group of people to dismantle it yes. and then progress will be made and then backlash and resistance happens. And then we, we kind of slide back. And so it's kind of this ebb and flow that continues to happen. And so we have more people that say collectively, we're going to work really hard to dismantle the ways in which racism shows up and also understand the way that racism operates, whether it is through prejudice language, through stereotypes, through myths, misconceptions, um, and then through institutional laws and policies. Yes. As you were writing this book, as you were putting it together, because it's full of all kinds of notes and references, and I love that. I, lo- I love books that have references, and you can look them up. I was wondering whether whether you, when initially you thought about putting the book together, and as you'll go, as as it's in process, whether the sort of the 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 direction kind of veered off for you in some respects because you do you do cover so many areas in raising anti-racist children if it was hard for you to sort of keep it not constrained but keep your focus where you wanted it rather than sort of go off in one direction or another direction it was unbelievably hard um because there's still so much more i want to put in and i think that when I first started practicing anti-racism, I tell folks all the time, you know, I was not born woke, but I do enjoy waking up. And so there's a lot that I'm still learning and working on. Yeah. And I used to approach racism in a very linear fashion that, okay, if we just solve the problem of racism in a vacuum, then liberation would happen. And then as I went on my journey, I realized, oh my goodness, all of these oppressions are interconnected, classism, homophobia, transphobia, sexism. And if I'm only approaching sexism as if it only affects white women or only approaching ableism as if it only affects white men, right? Then we're not going to actually get to liberation and, and that progress that we're all seeking. So in this book, I knew that there had to be an intersectionality that was placed Um, And then becomes the question of, so how much and what parts? And so for me, I thought about what are the ways in in my own home are we really focused on um, dismantling racism? And that came with our bodies, 
yes. the ways that I'm spending money. We do live in a capitalist society here in the state. So how I am spending my dollars, it is the community that I am building, that I'm seeking to build. Um, and then it's also that liberating language. It's how am I truly radicalizing my mind to rethink and be okay with those paradigm yeah. shifts. Yes. There are a number of chapters or, or, or I guess chapters in your book mm -hmm. that I want to touch on, but one that I'd like you to share with my listeners, and that's about hair. And, mm. and in some respects, this seems such a simple kind of why, why would anybody, I mean, you know, why would that be such an important thing? Talk to me about why it was important to talk about hair. Okay. So now I'm going to tell a little story. Yeah, please. Yes. I vividly remember being in kindergarten. I loved kindergarten class. It was an AM program. So it was like two and a half hours a day. And then my granny would pick me up and I would spend the rest of the day at her house until my parents got off work. Um, I enjoyed going to kindergarten every day. I had lots of friends. We used to watch Sesame Street and the letter people and all of that. I remember one day my mom did my hair and typically she would braid my hair and put barrettes. But this day, for whatever reason, she let me wear my hair curly and out. And so we were in class, we were sitting on the rug and another girl kept pulling my curls and it's going boing, boing. And I asked her to stop it and she didn't. And so I went up to the teacher and I said, so-and-so's pulling my hair. I don't like it. And my teacher said, well, it's just because it's different than hers. And I remember waiting for the teacher to say, but stop it. Don't touch her hair. And it yes. never happened. It was, well, you are different than her. And so you basically, it's okay that if you are her guinea pig or her, you know, museum artifact that she right. can figure out society. And so that was really a catalyst of me thinking about and talking about hair. Also being black hair is such a big thing in our community and our culture. We're very proud of our hair. We love our hair. Um, and our hair has been policed for centuries, right? We've had laws um, in Louisiana. We've had laws in Texas that have policed our hair. If we've had to wear um, bonnets in order to cover our hair or not, or certain hairstyles, our hair has also been a form of liberation. And so we've had um, escape routes that have been put into our braids when we, when our ancestors were enslaved as a way to um, practice the underground railroad. Today in contemporary times, we've had students who are suspended for their hairstyles. Yes. For wearing hair that is protective and affirming for them. And so putting that in there, I wanted to balance both a child's curiosity around hair and saying that young children are curious. If you know, you've ever have held a toddler on your hip, they touch your hair. They feel your hair because that is how they're understanding the world. Yes. So at what point do we then start to help children say, but it is also important that we have boundaries around people's hair, yes. right? And that we can start to ask for consent. And so putting that in the book, um, and then the last thing is my partner, my husband is a barber. And so we have nonstop <laughs> conversations about hair. And I remember when our children were young, we bought them mannequins, stylus mannequins, yeah. and they yeah. could practice, um, you know, put spraying the water bottle on different hair textures. They could practice braiding hair. They could practice um, using the clippers on hair. And so that was to me a way that we can both have language with young children and talk about someone's hair is really curly or very curly or thick or fine. We could talk about hair color, but we can also practice boundaries. 
And we can say, you know, in the book, I say, Miss Becky, I noticed that Jasmine is touching your hair. Is that okay? Right. And so we can model all of that for our young children. Thank you for explaining that. I think it's, I think that part is, is such an important one. And I, I, I've got a question for you relating to that. And I don't know that you're going to have a definitive answer, but I just wonder how many white people in quotes have ever touched a black person's hair. Uh, and and I, 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 yes, it's a kind of a odd question in some respects, but it's a question that may, when I'm reading your book, on hair it made me think about i wonder how many people actually know what it feels like to touch a a, a black person's hair because there's all kinds of black people's hair like there's all kinds Mm -hmm. of white people's hair but until you actually touch it you don't know how cool it is i mean you don't know you see it from afar maybe you see it from somebody standing next to you in a line Mm -hmm. at the supermarket but until you actually touch it until you actually tactilely touch it Mm. it's it's a completely different thing. And I just think it would be so wonderful if we could all go around touching <laughs> touching one another's hair with permission, of course. I think that would be really, really cool. Yeah, I think with young children, that's why it's so important that we practice respectful curiosity, being yes. able to ask someone, you know, hey, can I touch your hair? I'm curious. And allowing the other person to say, mm, no, that's not okay. It's yeah. also why I'm an educational consultant. And so my day job is to go and work with classroom teachers on anti-racist, anti-bias practices in the classroom. Yeah. And I recommend for preschool and early childhood educators to bring in those hair mannequins that have human hair, that have different hair textures that their young children can practice from a very young age, feeling the hair, touching the hair, because children are tactile learners. I think as adults, we, we do definitely want to get away from that, of, of wanting to touch someone in order to practice being respectful. And I think that's another reason why the younger that we can do this work with children, the better. So that someone doesn't have to wait until they're, you know, 30, 40, 50 to say, gosh, I've never actually been around diversity or experienced diversity in that way. It's, It's better than we can then normalize differences when children are younger. Do you think that our political situation, and again, you touch on this in your book, is is beyond repair as regards how we handle racism in this country. I wonder if we've got to a point now where we have to rethink how, how do we plow through this? Do we just keep striving forward or do we say, hold, hold on a second. We really need to rethink about how we're behaving towards one another. Yeah. You know, in the book, I say that our goal is to create an anti-racist democracy and that we want our children to be democratic. And what I hope both as a, for a caregiver, but also as educators, is that we are really honest about what is it that I know about democracy? And what is it that I don't know? And then what is it that I need to teach myself and also then teach my children? Because having democratic values is very important to this work. And I have no other choice but to practice hope is a practice. It's a discipline. I have no other choice, but to practice it. Um, And to also hold my politicians accountable when they are not practicing democracy, when they are not speaking for the masses, when they are not representing us, you know, they have an empowered vote because I empower them as a citizen. And I think making sure that we're going back to the basics of what is democracy and that democracy is going to benefit all of us, not a few of us, but all of us, and that we empower our politicians. And so in our household, for instance, we have a photo frame 
and we renew, we updated every two about every two years with a photo frame with our governor, our senators, our House of Representatives, our mayors, we have their name, their phone number, and their social media handles. And so when my children are able to call something out, I'd say, you know what, we should write something, right? You yes. can write them a letter. And so we have a letter writing station in our house. We have envelopes. Um, we, I, we have the president's, the vice president's address written down. But I want to practice with my children. We've been doing that since they're about three or four, even if it's drawing a picture. Draw a picture of what community looks like to you. Draw a picture of what a playground looks like that you want in your neighborhood. And we're going to mail it to them, right? Tell yes. me what you want me to write on it. Because that is really the, where we're trying to go when we have a liberated society. It's a society where everyone is their fullest self. And that not only are we practicing critical thinking, right? But we're also practicing being conscious citizens as well. Yes. Oh, so important. I, I particularly, I think, I don't. Doesn't really matter if you're you're a parent or not. In my thinking, and even though the subtitle is a practical parenting guide, I think this is a practical guide for anybody that's interested in just stopping this ludicrousness of racism. Raising anti-racist children is the title of the book. My guest is Britt Hawthorne. I really enjoyed talking to you. I really enjoyed reading your book, and thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. The links to the books and music we feature on Life Elsewhere are always up at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Do me a favor. Let me know what you think of Life Elsewhere. Send me an email with your thoughts. My email address is normanb at lifeelsewhere.co. Still to come, new ambient experimentation from Lorraine James, a.k.a. Whatever the Weather. Next, my conversation with Sri Lankan-based author Amanda Jayatisa on her psychological and wickedly funny whodunit, My Sweet Girl. Thank you for listening to Life Elsewhere. You can learn more about this program at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. My guest is Amanda Jayatisa. Her book is titled My Sweet Girl. And for those of you that see this on Zoom, you can see I'm holding this up. And I've got to tell you, this book absolutely shocks me. It took me by surprise. And I'm just, oh, gosh, I'm, I've got so much to ask you about this. Welcome to Life Elsewhere, Amanda. Thank you so much, Norman. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. This is one sensational book. It's, it's got all kinds of things going on. It's very, very dark. Yet at the same time, it's got this wicked, and I mean seriously wicked, sense of humor. Here I am looking at you, and you seem just like the most loveliest lady. And I'm thinking to myself, where on earth did this wickedness come from? Oh, that's that's because I do a really good job with my, you know, Paloma mask. <laughs> yes, um, yes. <laughs> no, I, I joke. Um it's actually very funny because I, I do get asked that question a lot is yeah. where the, the darkness come from. Are you really this angry? Um, what's going on up there? And um, 
you know, if you had fun reading Paloma, I have to say I had an absolute blast writing her. I um, can imagine. It, yeah. yeah. It was just really fun, I think, to give myself permission to get as angry or to to feel or, or to think all these thoughts that normally um, you would feel a certain amount of restraint. Because I think, especially as women, you're thought to behave a certain way and to act a certain way. And with this character, I could just let go of everything completely and let her feel whatever she needed to feel. But yes, of course, yes. even though she was feeling those things, she would also wear this mask and present herself um, to the world in a way that was accepted or expected of her. Expected, yes. Let's, for my listeners, before we go any further, let's just give them a little overview of the book. Would you mind just telling my listeners without giving anything away, just a little sort of a synopsis of the story? Sure. So very quickly, My Sweet Girl is about a woman who finds her blackmailing roommate dead in their San Francisco apartment. And um, when the police arrive, they can't find any trace of the body or, or any evidence that the roommate even existed to begin with. Paloma, that's our main character, is convinced that this is somehow tied into her childhood in Sri Lanka and the decisions that she made to escape the orphanage where she grew up. Yes. So you just said the magic or two words. Sri Lanka is where you are from and where you are right now. And we've loved that. I just want for my listeners to understand where Sri Lanka is. Of course, for me growing up in the UK, once upon a time, I knew it as Ceylon. Sure. Sri Lanka is um, it's a little island just at the southern tip of India. So we're a little island in the Indian Ocean um, and it is not a part of India. We are our own sort of nationality and we have our own very distinct culture. And yeah, it was a it was a lot of fun to include Sri Lankan elements in my story. Yes. But you went to school in America and you've spent time in the UK, I understand. So I was wondering if being in America and then being in the UK and specifically being in the UK, that's where you picked up some of your, your dry humor. <laughs> that's a great question, Norman. I was really confused by British humor when I first got there. So I moved, I moved to the UK after I married my husband um, who had been uh, living there for about 10 years and is a British citizen. And um, so I remember when I moved there first being really confused um, and him having to sort of explain things to me. Uh, <laughs> I definitely um, in time came to really uh, appreciate, I think, uh, sort of the drier sense of humor. And I've always just been a big, big fan of sarcasm. So yes. I think yeah. that, that was fun. <laughs> Now, one thing that did catch me by surprise, and I honestly, I'm being absolutely honest about this, Amanda. I really don't know why I should have been so surprised. Maybe it's because I read your bio and I, you come from Sri Lanka. But when, and we're going to edit this out when I say it, uh, we're not going to edit it out. We're just going to bleep it for some of the stations the show goes out on. On some stations, it's going to be okay. And other stations, it won't. So the first time I see the word off on the, on the page, <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, my God, oh, my goodness, 
there's this photograph of this sweet young lady. And then she tells me she and she uses this word a lot. And she says all kinds of things. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, goodness. How is this possible? How is that possible, Amanda? Well, she it's all in her head. She never says it out loud. <laughs> no, you're uh, right. Yes. So and I, and I think a lot of women do that um, ah, because yeah. there's, a, there's an expectation versus sort of the reality of what's taking place in your thoughts, especially when you're angry or you feel like you're not in control, which I think is very relatable. Yes. And sometimes we think these very ungracious, very uncharitable uh kind of mean sassy things yes, but yes. of course we're not really allowed to show that side because we've been trained um to behave a certain way and to appear nice and kind and sweet and approachable and amiable and, and all of these these words that are associated with you know nice young ladies um yes. but a lot of the time there's a lot going on in here um right <laughs> That's what makes this book so fascinating because you you tell the story in the first person. You have dialogue and what dialogue? I want to get to that. But you also tell us what Paloma is thinking. And, and this is where it just becomes so magical for me. You talked about the beginning of the book where the policemen arrive uh, because she's got the, she's discovered the body of Aaron. And I've just got a bit of dialogue here that I just want to read because I just love this. And this is typical of what goes on in, in your book. Just wonderful descriptions. And I love this. I'm Officer Keller, his voice grated against my ears, raw and phlegmy. It made me want to clear my throat. I love that. Just conjures it up. It's just great stuff. You know, Writing dialogue in the first person and then giving the thoughts and the descriptions and it's not an easy task. What made you decide to write it in that style? I love writing in the first person yeah. because for me, that is the that is the best way to get this sort of um, honesty out. Yes. And uh, when I write, of course, the first thing I do is I do a bit of an outline, of course, but then I tend to spend some time. Um, almost journaling and writing, like just free writing in the voice of whoever the narrator is, just for me to get a sense of how they would speak and their mannerisms. Um, and so with Paloma, it was very much a lot of that. It was, you know, what came naturally to me when I sort of tapped into that angry, unreined side of my mind um, that, you know, I didn't even know existed, to be honest, still yes. until we started. Um, and then thinking about of course the way that we would of course react to people when we were actually speaking to them so it was that contrast um, that I had a lot of fun playing with it's wonderful and it moves very fast you've got you have a wonderful way of going well you do it you 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 tell us in each chapter one minute we're in San Francisco and then we're going back in time to Sri Lanka and it's just it's it's wonderful I love the way you do that the characters. Paloma is your main character, or is she? Because you also have, I'm going to hope I'm going to pronounce this correctly, Lahini? Lahini, her best friend. Lahini, yes. yes. And then you've got the therapist, Mina. Now, there's a mm-hmm. character I want to talk about. Aaron, the, the dead person, or mm-hmm. possibly not. Miss Chandra at the, at the orphanage. 
And another character that I'm interested in is, and again, again, I hope I'm going to pronounce this right, Piera Sir. They almost put Sir on the end. <laughs> Pereira, sir. Um, yeah. The sir on the end is how we would typically refer to yes. any person of authority uh, growing yes. up in Sri Lanka. So the Miss Chandra, the Pereira, sir, that was very much, um, you know, how any 12-year-old would refer to a person of authority. Right. And then, of course, there's Sam. And I want people to read the book so they understand who we're talking about and, what it, and what's going mm-hmm. on. This is where it becomes a little difficult, Amanda, because I don't want to give anything away. And you kept me, you kept me turning the page. But I will say this. You kept dropping little crumbs here and there. You kept giving me little teasers. And I'm like this. Oh, hold on a second. What does that mean? And I was... Every time I got to a new chapter, I'm thinking, okay, she said this back then. And I kept trying. And I, I, of course, I'm being just ridiculous and trying to put it all together before I get to the end of the book. I was kind of on the right track, but you twist and turn things around quite a little bit. And it's just, it's clever. And it comes back to that word I used at the beginning. You're very wicked, Amanda. And I really like that. <laughs> Thank you. It's really funny, right? You give um, a thriller writer a compliment like you're really wicked. It yeah. gave me nightmares. I think you've got a very <laughs> disturbed sense of humor. And we're like, oh, yes. thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so kind of you to say. Um, but you used a word that I, I really love, Norman. Um, and I try to use that um, when I when I think about my writing a lot, which is what crumbs. Because I think yes. the making of a really good thriller or really good suspense yes. are these little breadcrumbs that you sprinkle through that don't perhaps make sense when you, if you were lucky to stumble on one, but you know, on finally coming to the end and thinking back, you're like, yeah. oh, that makes sense to me now. So for me, that is that is the fun part. That is the, you know, the the plotting element that I uh, take a lot of time and you know, put a lot of energy into. So that was. Uh, that was so much fun, and I'm glad some of it tripped you up because that's yes. kind of. <laughs> I want to talk about the locations and just the descriptive parts of your book. And let me remind my listeners I'm talking to Amanda Jayatisa. Uh, the book is called My Sweet Girl. It's a terrific read. You do a wonderful job of, of bringing us into San Francisco, where, which I know very well. And you also bring us into Sri Lanka, which I've yet to visit, and I'm definitely going to visit after reading your book. It's, it just seems like a magical place, I, I, and I understand why you're living there right now. You do such a good job of, of, of just uh, describing and giving the, the, the environment, the atmosphere. Talk to me about that, Amanda, because that's, that's not easy to do. It wasn't... I, I lived in both places, so it yes. wasn't a great stretch of the imagination for me right. to base the characters there. But what I try to do a lot when I write is rather than sort of give descriptions, and I am a very visual person, so I do like the visual descriptions, but I also try to invoke um, the sense of feeling that I had when I lived or visited in these areas. For example, the sort of suburbs where Paloma's parents live and where she returns to after discovering her dead roommate's body. Um, I I call it sort of a suburban house of mirrors, um, the neighborhood, because for me, that's how it felt the first time 
I visited a suburb in the Bay Area, I couldn't tell anything apart. So the suburb where my best friend lived, for example, like I would go visit her all the time, but we'd always get lost because I just couldn't tell the streets apart. And and that was sort of some of the emotion that I tried to invoke when I thought about Paloma, who growing up in Sri Lanka, it's a little easier to find your way around because of the, you know, the very vivid, very different sort of um, uh, environment that you you know, face and deal with. And then you move somewhere where things are very, very different and you're trying to assimilate and you don't quite know how. So there was a lot of that that came in um, that was really fun to do. And it was really fun to tap into these sort of feelings that I hadn't really almost realized they were there or laid dormant somewhere. And I had to kind of coax them out a little bit because when I wrote the book, I had moved back to Sri Lanka. I wasn't living in the Ah, Bay Area. Okay, yeah. I wrote it all in Sri Lanka. So it was interesting to think back on what happened eight or nine years ago, back when I was writing the book, it's more than 10 years now. So, um, you know, it was very interesting to get into that mindset. You know, you said something earlier on. You said you had a great fun writing the book. You really enjoyed writing, which it, it, it comes across. And, and there's a sort of a question tied in with this, which I... I'm not going to deliberately ask you because I'm sure everybody asks you this is what part of Paloma is you or what part of you is Paloma? I got the feeling that this is a made up character. This isn't, this just isn't, isn't Amanda, thankfully, because I think it would be very weird if you were writing about yourself like this. But (laughs) having, having said that the characters themselves and particularly Nina, Nina caught my attention having been to therapy myself I kind of thought to myself, wow, is Nina the same therapist that I went to? <laughs> because I, I had, I've had the same thoughts sitting there just being kind of angry when a therapist asks you questions that you really don't want to be asked. And you do that so well, Amanda. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Um, the interesting thing about writing characters is that, you know, you, you ask me if there are bits of Paloma in me or bits of me in Paloma. Yeah. And- and the truth is there are bits of me in all these characters, all of, yes. right? Um, yeah, yeah. And that's sort of the, the simplest answer. Uh, Nina was super fun to write. Um, I have a master's in psychology. And so I um, kind of thought back to a lot of the therapists, the psychologists that I met at the time. I kind of merged them all together. And, and I think it's always frustrating. And, and the reason that you would find Nina frustrating is that Nina is encouraging slash forcing or, or or trying to get Paloma to really face certain truths. And yes. And as people, I think we do have a degree of hesitancy to that, right? You don't really want to face the real truth, especially if you've been through something incredibly traumatic. Like right. Paloma. Yes. Think, yes. I'm glad that you found Nina frustrating. She was meant to be frustrating. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and I was, uh, I had, yeah, it was really interesting writing her uh, and, and sort of putting her together. She's a great foil for the story. I mean, she comes in at just the right times. And I, I, I really like that. Talk to me about Paloma, about, I mean, I'm just always interested in names. Why the name Paloma? <laughs> great <laughs> There is no, there is no significance to the name. It's just a name that I thought was beautiful. It's yeah. a name that um, can be pronounced in two different ways. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so in Sri Lanka, for example, we'd say Paloma, 
right? Okay. Because yeah. we don't have that uh, sound in our singular alphabet. And yes. it was interesting to me because growing up, so my parents named me Amanda, but Amanda can't even be written in Sinhalese. It's pronounced either Amanda or Amanda or, you know, some variation of that. So Amanda was my American sort of pronunciation or my Western pronunciation. And um, I remember the first time someone sort of actively call me, calling me that, the feeling that I had. So I knew I wanted to give her a name that had two pronunciations and might not even typically be um, a very Sri Lanka. Paloma isn't a very Sri Lankan name. It's not a common name here. Um, it's just like Amanda isn't typically a name that you would hear. That has changed over time, of course. But growing up, I did get a lot of like, where did that name come from? You know, throughout the book, you throw in some. How do you did you say Sinhalese? Is that what you said for for the language from Sri Lanka? Is that? Yes, we have two languages here: Sinhala and Tamil. I I noted that you have a film agent, and and I as I'm reading the book, I said to myself, and I do this often. This is this is a quirk that I have, Amanda. Is that I start to think, who would I cast for this character and for that character? You have to have an offer. You have to have somebody's bought the rights to this book. I'm almost positive about that. And if they haven't, they should. <laughs> so who do you want to play Paloma? Outside That's of yourself, so of course. <laughs> Outside of my <laughs> no way. Um, I would, honestly, I would really love if Priyanka Chopra could play Paloma. <sighs> because I feel like she has that grit to her that yeah. you see sometimes in certain roles and I think she would do this just spectacular job of um, almost playing this character who has a lot going on in her head and has to put on this face and might be slowly coming unraveled throughout that process so in my mind I pictured um, yeah I, I think I pictured Priyanka Chopra a lot when I was when I was writing yeah, this as yes well. <laughs> Has the book been optioned? Am, 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 am I right in guessing that? No, no, it hasn't. Oh, um, oh, there's a okay. lot of hope, <laughs> a lot of things <laughs> crossed, yes. um, but no, it has not yet. You make some literary references in the book, not least of all, Withering Heights, one of my all-time favourite books, I have to admit. I was wondering about that. I was wondering whether mentioning Withering Heights, whether whether you were, I don't know, whether there's any influence there, any any specific reason? Well, growing up in Sri Lanka, and I think especially sort of post-colonial Sri Lanka, yeah. um, you're exposed to a lot of classics. Yes. Right? That is something that is very much a part of your education in your curriculum. And But with Withering Heights, I, I knew that there was going to be some tension in my story. And I knew that tension was going to center around a book. Um, yes. And I knew it was going to be play an important sort of plot element. Yes. And, um, you know, Wuthering Heights was my mother's favorite book. She passed away 11 years ago and was just such a big supporter of my writing and always, you know, certain things about her always find a way. They, they always sneak their way into my writing. So I thought, hey, you know, as a nod to my mom, why don't I um, use this nice. book? Yeah. And it was only during sort of maybe a third or fourth edit that I started to see. I was like, hey, there are all these parallels that I yes. can draw on. And then I remember I stopped everything and I read the book again because um, I hadn't in many years. And I was like, yeah. hey. Uh, you know, it is, there are so many themes here. It's about, um, you know, a person that has been 
is, is trying to find their way in a society that isn't really accepting of them and the struggles that they face. And there's so much of interesting parallels. Um, of course, the book that My Sweet Girl gets compared to the most is the other Bronte sisters, book, which is Jane Eyre. Of um, course, yes, yeah. <laughs> that yes. happens, but we won't discuss that too much because I feel that there might be spoiler elements. That, that would happen. be a spoiler, yes, yes. <laughs> but let's just say this, there, there is an, um, deceit as a word that I, I, I think of when I'm when I'm thinking about my sweet girl tragedy. I mean, there's a, there's all kinds of things that you could sort of do one words for. Before we go, and I've, I, I do have a couple more questions, and I want to get this in before I forget. I've got to ask you about Hector and Harley. Oh, my babies! <laughs> <laughs> Please explain to my listeners what I'm talking about. Hector and Harley are my two rambunctious. Tasmanian devil reincarnate huskies um, who came into our lives and have made them so much better. Um, they are very demanding yeah. and will, you know, come and let me know if I am not on schedule for their walks or their, their dinner or anything like that. Hector will come to my, if I'm writing, like Hector will come into my office and he will sit down and he will bark at me or I have a chair that has wheels on it. He will sometimes grab something on the chair and pull. So I'll get, um, so they're very smart and very demanding. And I can't imagine my life without them. Well, of course, I know that's about the dogs because you mentioned them in the acknowledgements in the back of your book. And that is an area that I always like to read because it always gives me a little insight into the author that, um, that I'm reading. So thank you for mentioning the two dogs. Before we go, before we go, you, you've already established you had fun writing the book, and I've already, I think, repeated this a number of times. It's a, it's a twisty tale of intrigue, and well, it's I, I don't want to say too much because it's going to give it away. Oh, thank I'm, you. I'm, I didn't know, and I don't know, and I need to ask you this. But is this your first? Is this your debut novel? It is my debut thriller. I did ah. write a book in back in 2017 um, that was. Um, a sort of speculative fiction type book that I had set this deadline in my mind that by the time I was 30, I would have written something and put it out into the world. And so I um, self-published in Sri Lanka. Uh, it was sort of very rushed. And um, I mean, thinking back, there are many things that I would do a little differently. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, I was very lucky because it won an award locally. And that gave me this huge burst of confidence and really actually set the path for me to actively pursue traditional publishing, which I was a little, I think, afraid to do before that. I appreciate you coming on the program. We've been talking to Amanda Jayatisa. And her book is called My Sweet Girl, a great read. Amanda, thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Norman. This was so much fun. I love chatting with you. A big thank you to my guests, Britt Hawthorne and Amanda Jayatisa. Info on their books are up at lifeelsewhere.co. And now, to take us up to the closing credits, new ambient music from a talented DJ, producer and musician out of North London. Lorraine James, who for this outing is going by Whatever the Weather. Here then, from their beautifully produced self-titled album, it's 17 Degrees Centigrade. For full effect, turn this one up to at least 12. Till next time.
be well, be safe, and as always, you know it makes sense. Be nice. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.com. Dot co. That's C-O. Mm-hmm.